Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi, we're going to look at chapter 1. That's, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible in the pew in front of you. You can turn to page 849. 849, and we're going to go to page 851, the book of Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. So... We are finishing up here our series on the minor prophets of the Old Testament, the smaller prophets, or we could, we could call it better, the shorter prophets, because they're not minor in the sense that they're less significant, they're just shorter books, so the shorter prophets in terms of length. For our scripture reading, before I jump in, I'm going to read Malachi 1, 1 through 4, and then chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. 1, 1 through 4, and then chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Hear God's word from Malachi chapter 1. Now, Malachi was writing and preaching around 450 to 430 AD. So the temple has been built for at least 50 to 65 years, or 65 to 75 or 80 years. And he's writing here. This is the last voice that God's going to speak authoritatively, at least from Scripture before Jesus, another 400 years later with John the Baptist. So here then, God's word, Malachi 1, verse 1. A pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. And then Malachi chapter 4, Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, to the end of the book. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we thank you that you've spoken. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you warn us and remind us and encourage us through your word. We pray now that you would give us wisdom to understand your word that you would help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Open our eyes to see wonderful things here, Lord. We have all kinds of desires. We've got other burdens in our lives, other things we want. We pray that you would incline our hearts to want you and to want your word and not material gain. Show us here in your word. Enlighten our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Give us a singular focus on you. Help us to not be double-minded, half here and half somewhere else. And we pray that you would satisfy us this morning with your faithful covenant love so that we would rejoice and be glad in you all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Another question that would get at the same idea is, what are you looking forward to? What are you looking forward to? Everyone lives by looking forward to something. And everyone lives by waiting for the next thing. So we're constantly waiting for the next thing and looking forward to something. When we lose our purpose, when we lose the next thing we're looking forward to, we lose our purpose in life. It has been said before that many times when people are struggling with their health for life, sometimes you're in an opportunity where as long as they have someone, something to fight for, they keep fighting to live when they have that opportunity. And then when they lose the will, there's nothing to look forward to anymore, that their health begins to fade rapidly. So what are you living for? What are you waiting for? What are you looking forward to next? Is it work tomorrow? In school? Is it a nap, a Sunday afternoon nap? What are you looking forward to? Everyone looks forward to something, and you just look forward to the next thing and the next thing, task to task, event to event, until you end your life and you, you die. And sometimes, for, for many people, what they keep looking forward to, they just keep on thinking there's going to be another good thing and another good thing, and it eventually leads to, to literally walking off a cliff. Maybe not literally, figuratively, walking off a cliff. Spiritually, into hell. And for others, it might lead to life. That's what we Christians believe, right? We believe that if you come through Christ, you live for Christ, and you live looking forward to his coming, that in the end we'll be with him on the new earth. And if you're apart from Christ, you'll end up in the lake of fire. Are Christians deluded? Are we confused? Do we really believe that Jesus is king and that he is coming back to judge the living and the dead? Do we really think that we will reign with him on a new earth in resurrected bodies? Do you actually believe this stuff? Are we confused? Are we deceived? Have we drank the Kool-Aid? and are just tripping? We want to live with this true biblical hope, but sometimes it sounds, if we're quite honest, a little fairy tale-ish, a little wishful thinking, that we just hope maybe there's a new earth to come, and maybe we won't go to hell. Maybe there is no hell. We kind of just hope, and it, it sounds like a fantasy. Why not focus on things like things we can see. So we don't have to worry about wishful things. Why not focus on our health? Let's get healthy. Let's get strong. Let's work out. Let's eat right. Or why not focus on money to make money? That's tangible. You could see that. Or work on our careers to, to get the next promotion and move up the ladder of influence and power. Or why not focus on relationships? At least we could see these people we're relating to. Why do we need to think about a new earth to come and live our lives for something that we can't see what do you do when you keep waiting for God's promises and it seems like nothing is happening? How do you keep from being cynical and skeptical and maybe even eventually hopeless? That's what Christians wait for, waiting for Christ to come. How long has, have Christians been waiting for Christ to come? I mean, what if we keep focusing on heaven and on things above, not things of the earth, that, that this, the good life here on earth passes us by because we keep our eyes on Christ? So the good life here on earth passes us by. What if we, what if we live with regret and end up at the, on our deathbed fearing the fact that we didn't live our life to the fullest? What if we find out that we've wasted our time and energy on a lie? Are we getting tricked by mere propaganda? Is it really worth living 
for something we can't see in the future as our hope? What are you living for? Even if you're not a Christian, and I assume there are some here who are not Christian, thank you for coming here this morning. We're glad you're here with us. You are living for something. You're looking forward to something, and you do from day to day and moment to moment. What is it that you're living for? And who are you believing? Well, the main goal of Malachi is to look forward faithfully to God's final arrival. To look forward faithfully to God's final arrival. You can call it the kingdom that's going to come. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God's final arrival. It's not just God's kingdom, but God the king himself is going to come. So look forward faithfully. You might get tired of looking forward faithfully, you might get weary, but the call is to look forward faithfully to God's final arrival. Now the question is, how do you do this? How do we look forward faithfully to God's final arrival when it feels like nothing's happening? Malachi gives us three ways to look forward faithfully to God's final arrival, okay? So if you're taking notes, here are three ways to look forward to God's look forward faithfully to God's final arrival. Number 1, by testing ourselves. By testing ourselves. Number two, by, um, let me look at my notes here, by trusting in God. By trusting in God. And number three, by remembering his promises. Okay? So how do we look forward faithfully when we're tempted to doubt or become skeptical or cynical or live for the things of this earth? We do it by, trust, by testing ourselves, and that's going to be the bulk of our message, the longest point because it's almost the whole book. And then secondly, by trusting God, and thirdly, by remembering his promise. Okay? So let's look forward faithfully, first of all, by testing ourselves. That's chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 15. That's almost the whole book. Okay? So point one is by testing ourselves. And there are five tests in chapters 1 through 3, 15. Okay? Five tests to test yourselves. So here it is, brothers and sisters. Not going to be too much application. We're doing an overview of the whole book, but we'll do a little bit of application here and there. But test yourselves. Test number one. Do you feel God's love for you? I'm asking you that. Do you feel God's love for you? That's test number one. Do you feel that God loves you? Not just do you know it's true. Do you feel God's love for you? That's chapter one, verses two through five. So look at verse two. God says to them, I've loved you, yet you ask... How have you loved us? I mean, I know you love us. You say you love us, but how have you, like practically, how have you loved us? Now, does God love Israel? Yes or no? But here they're doubting it. Okay, God, how have you done it? Like show us, prove it to us. How have you loved us? And then God answers. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I have loved, I love Jacob, but I what? I hated Esau. So God gives three answers, and it's in the, we already read this verse for the scripture reading. God gives three answers. He, he says, you want to know how I loved you? I'll give you three, three, three answers. Number one, I hated Esau, but I loved you. I loved Israel. I loved Jacob. Hated Esau and Edom, but I loved you. Secondly, Edom, where they live right across the Dead Sea, I've turned their land into a wasteland. But your land is a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. Okay? So I, I turned their land into wasteland. And even if they built it up, I would destroy it again. A third reason, or third way that I've loved you, is that they are destined to demolition and the curse of their wickedness. So every time they build, I'm going to smash it down again. And guess what? At the last day, they are not blessed. They are 
cursed. But are you cursed or are you blessed? And then fourthly, you will see the destruction. You know how I've loved you? I will show you in the last day their destruction, and you will say that I am great even beyond Israel, even beyond the covenant community, even beyond the promised land. Here's four ways God shows his love to Israel. He hated Esau but loved them. Number two, he turns Esau's land, Edom, into a wasteland. Number three, every time they build up, he smashes it again, and they're going to be finally cursed. And number four, Israel will see God wasting them, and they will say that God is great on the last day. That's how God has loved Israel. So, Israel, do you feel God's love? And then now, Bethany Baptist Church, do you feel God's love? You know, Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 9, one of the most beautiful and difficult, heart-wrenching, but glorious passages in all of the Bible. Romans 9. Paul quotes this, right? He takes this, he says, Jacob I love, but Esau I have hated. I want you to say that out loud just because it's in the Bible, okay? I want you, you need to feel this. Jacob I have love, but Esau I have hated. Paul picks up on this in Romans 9. And it, so he's quoting here, He's quoting Malachi, but then Paul goes, takes us even back, as Malachi intends us to do, to think about Jacob and Esau. Do you remember Jacob and Esau? They were twins, and they were fighting in the womb. And Rebecca, the mom, was like, what's going on? She's praying to God, like, what's going on in my womb? Right? There's all this, well, the, the kids were kind of fighting about who's going to go out first. Even when they came out, Esau went out, and Jacob was holding on to Esau's heel, trying to get out first. And they went out, and Jacob was holding on to Esau's heel. But before the birth... Rebecca was praying to God, and God said to Rebecca, you have two nations in your womb, and the older will serve the younger. Jacob was the second one out. The older will serve the younger. So who did God choose to be exalted, Jacob or Esau? Jacob, Israel, that nation, and not Esau. And Paul says it was before they did anything good or bad. It's not that Jacob was better than Esau. And he was more morally upright. He obeyed God and Esau didn't. That's not why God chose. Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Because God chose Jacob and not Esau. Because he wanted to. Why did God love Jacob and not Esau? Because God wanted to love Jacob. Why did God choose to hate Esau? Because God chose to hate Esau and Edom. That's the point of Romans 9, 9 through 13. God is free. He's not bound by your choices, your decisions. He doesn't owe us anything. We are clay, and he is the potter. You have no power over God, Christian or non-Christian. You have zero power over God. God does what he wants. He loves whom he loves, and he hates whom he hates. Paul goes on to say, God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens those he hardens. Now, God's decision to love the Israelite covenant community, whether in the old Israelite covenant before Jesus or us, the new Israelite covenant community, in the new Israelite covenant under Jesus, God has chosen to love his people. He chose to love you. My question is, there's the test, do you feel that love? Do you feel the privilege of the fact that God chose to love you when he didn't have to love you. Let's do a little bit of theology here because this is a hard passage, right? I mean, we're jumping in the deep end. This is only point, you know, one of point one in terms of the tests. But let's, let's do a little bit of theology here. 
um, question. How is it fair and loving to the non-elect? How is it fair and loving that God chooses some but not others? How is it fair that God chooses to hate some and love others? How is that fair? Answer? Well, that's really two questions. How is it fair and how is it loving? It is fair because everything God does is fair, and God is not punishing them. God is not punishing them in hell forever just because he chose to. It's because they are sinners, and they've sinned. And the wages of sin is death. So that's the first reason why it's fair. Is God, they're getting the fair judgment that we all deserve for our sins. We all deserve it. How is it loving for God not to choose them? How is it God loving? How is God loving them by not choosing them? Answer, he's not loving them. It doesn't say he loved Esau. It says he what? Hated Esau. The word God uses here is he hated Esau. This is not the only verse in the Bible that speaks this way. I'll just give you one other one, Psalm 5, verse 5. In Psalm 5, 5, it says that God hates the wicked. He hates the wicked. So then, let's ask another theology question. Does God love the non-elect in any sense? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, so the question is, in what sense does God love? Okay, if God, does God love Esau in any sense? Does God love our Bellflower neighbors? 77,000 people in Bellflower, 1.3 million in Southeast Los Angeles County, 10 million in LA County. Does God love everyone here, all 10 million? Yes, in some way. But the question is, in what way? Because in another way, he hates them. So in what way does he hate, and in what way does he love? The Bible's not contradicting here. You need to put these things together carefully, okay? That's what theology does. So in what sense does God love the non-elect? He loves them in at least a few ways. He loves them in the fact that he made them in his image. He gives them common grace. He gives this common grace good that we prayed for. He gives them life and breath. Non-Christians right now who are going, like the ones who are not going to be saved, even in the future, those who are going to hell, those who are destined for hell, are right now, those who are alive, are breathing in air. Who's providing that air? God is. God causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust, the wicked. He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He gives food to all, not just the righteous, but also the unrighteous. So God gives common grace good because he loves. And then most of all, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, not just Christians. He loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world how? By offering his son, by giving the, them the opportunity to be saved. And by, for some non-Christians, even sending Christians to share the gospel with them. Is that not love? God loves non-Christians. He loves the world in that sense. But he also hates in terms of their sin and even them as sinners. Because you can't, you know, say love, love the sin or love the sin, sorry, backwards. Hate the sin, love the sinner. And that's true, just not completely true. It's for God, and actually for even us, in some ways, if you read on in the Bible, but I'm not going to get into that now. It's hate the sin, and hate the, hate the sin and the sinner, and love the sinner. Hate the sin and the sinner, that's for God, hate the sin and the sinner, and also love the sinner. Hate in one sense, love in another sense. 
All right? So then in what sense does God, if God loves the world by giving them common grace and making them in his image and sending his son to die so that they have the opportunity to be saved, in what sense does God hate them? Because you're saying hate the sinner. How does God hate sinners? How does God hate Esau and Edom and the non-elect? How does God hate them? He hates them in the sense that when looking at the pool of all humanity, all of them are under Adam. So they are sinners deserving what? Death, condemnation. All sinners deserve condemnation. Here's how God hates the non-elect. He they're, all, they're all condemned. He condemns them finally to the lake of fire for their sins. That's number one. And number two, he does not choose to take them out of that pool of condemnation and put them in the group of salvation. He does not choose to make them part of his people. He does not choose to make them part of his bride. All of us are in this pool, Christian and non-Christian, initially. And God hates the non-elect by leaving them there, choosing to leave them there. It's not passive only. It is partly passive because they're already there, but it is part active. God is not just forgetting about them. God is choosing. He's choosing. And in that sense, even though he loves the world, sends his son to die for them, gives an opportunity, gives him common grace, in that sense, he hates them in their sin. Okay, here's another question. If he chooses and sets his love, does that mean they have, if God chooses and sets his love only on the elect, does this mean that non-Christians have no real opportunity to be saved? It might be, it might mean that if you just don't read the rest of the Bible. But let me give you other biblical truth. Does everyone have the opportunity to be saved, yes or no? The answer is, in a sense, I mean, God says in, in Jeremiah 33, I think, 33, 3? No, it's not Jeremiah 33, 3. Jeremiah 29, 13. If you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. Is that true for Christians and non-Christians? Yes. Any human who seeks God will find him, truly seeks God with all their heart. And God reveals himself in nature, Romans 1, and in conscience, Romans 2. So that Cornelius, remember Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? He was a pagan, and he was praying to God over and over and over again, but he didn't know the true God. But he feared God as far as what God revealed. So God came to Cornelius in a vision and said, go call for Peter. And Peter comes and shares the gospel, and then Cornelius gets saved. You don't get saved apart from the gospel. But Cornelius was seeking God with all his heart. But it also says in the Bible that no one seeks God. So why did Cornelius seek God? Because God was working in Cornelius. He set his love on Cornelius. So does this mean that the non-elect have no opportunities to be saved? No, they have an opportunity. God reveals himself in nature and in conscience. And not only that, for some, Christ, for some non-Christians, especially if you're in America, if you're here right now in this room, if you're not a Christian, you know how God um, loves you? He's giving you an opportunity right now today to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. This is not a, f a false choice. You will choose whether to sit in this room or leave at the end of this gathering. You can choose that. You'll also choose Jesus or not choose Jesus at the end of this gathering or right now. But you're making a choice. You have a real opportunity if you're not a Christian. Do, 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 so to the Christians here, do non-Christians have opportunities, real opportunities to, be, to believe in Christ and repent? Yes or no? Yes. If they would repent from their sins, stop loving their sin and love Jesus instead. But if you don't turn and love Jesus, guess what? You're stuck in your own love against Jesus and you'll be damned for it. God gives us real choices. It's not whether God chooses or we choose. 
God chooses, ultimately, and we choose. Now, if you're not a Christian, let me say a word to you, because this is like the deep end of the pool of theology, right? By the way, if you're a Christian here, you share the gospel with non-Christians, don't run from these truths. Don't necessarily lead with this, you know, but, but, but don't run from them either. All of God's word is for faith and repentance. And if someone doesn't like this, that's because they don't like God. And so you want to help them see that they don't like God. That's part of what you're calling them to repent from. So if you're not a Christian, let me tell you, God is loving you by giving you life, breath, and making you hear my voice right now as I teach this Bible truth. That's God's love for you. And so what God is telling you is that God sent Jesus Christ to die for your sins because you're a sinner, like all of us are sinners, and we all deserve hell. God made you. He's also your judge. And God is telling you, I sent Jesus to die for your sins and rise from the dead if you will repent from your sins and your goodness and trust in me. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, thank you for coming. If you have more questions about that, I would love to talk to you about this at the door. We could go through it. it. It's not just what the Bible teaches. It is. That's the ultimate authority. But it does make sense. There is really no other way to conceive of these things logically. So I want to ask you to trust in Jesus. Choose Jesus. He is trustworthy. He is lovely. So here's my question to you if you're not a Christian. Do you trust in Jesus? Will you call on God to save you today? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone not just some, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe in your heart that God raised him, raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. So don't get so hung up on this election and sovereignty of God and God choosing that you actually make the wrong choice right now. If you call on Jesus to save you now, the Bible says, God says, you will be saved. Christians, I want you to feel the immense privilege that you're a Christian. Why are you a Christian and not a Christian? Is it because you're smarter than non-Christians? Is it because you're better than non-Christians? Is it because you're morally superior to non-Christians? Is that why you're a Christian? Is that why God chose you? Yes or no? No. Why did God love you? Because he loves you. He chose you. Do you understand that there's nothing you do to make God choose you? He chose to love you. Praise God. Were it not for grace, I'd be, this is what one of the songs says, I'd be wandering down some pointless road to nowhere with my salvation up to me. I mean, what if God did not interrupt your life and save you? Where would you be today? What would you be doing? What would you be hoping for? What would you be waiting for? What would you be looking forward to? How would you be handling the problems in your life if you didn't have God and Jesus Christ? Praise God. He saved you. God loves you. He chose you before eternity, before the world began. In eternity past, God chose you. Praise God for his love. Read Romans 8 and 9 and feel God's love. Second test. Okay, that's a long one. That was a big theological one. We had to take time for that. Test number two. Are you fulfilling your priesthood? Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize here a lot of Malachi. You're going to have to read it for homework, okay? But this is chapter 1, verses 6, through chapter 2, verse 16. Are you fulfilling your priesthood? And so what do the priests do? The priests make offerings, the priests teach, and the priests teach morality and, and marry. So um, are you fulfilling your priesthood of offerings and teaching and marriage? Now you say, I'm not a Levitical priest of the Old Covenant. You're not, but if you're a Christian in the New Covenant, you're part of the Holy Priesthood. 
So therefore, listen to this and ask yourself, um, test yourself. Are you fulfilling your priesthood in terms of offering? Priests make sacrifices. And so in chapter 1, verse 6, um, God says that you dishonor me and you despise my name. And they say, how have we despised your name? And in verse 7, he says, here's, here's how they despise God's name. Test yourselves. Verse 7, by presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice. This is chapter 1, verse 8. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And you, when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? So what are they bringing to God? What's, what kind of offering are they bringing? They're leftovers. The things that they don't want. They're not inconvenienced in offering to God. They bring God their leftovers. And when you bring God your leftovers, and you're never inconvenienced by sacrificing for God, you dishonor his name. You despise him. Because you're saying, oh God, you're important enough for my leftovers. But what's the first of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. But if you're only bringing me your leftovers, God's question to you is, where's your best going? To whom is your best going? Where is the best of your money going? Where is the best of your time going? If you give God your leftovers, you despise him. You dishonor him. God says, you've despised my name. You bring less than your best, and you pass it off as if it is your best. Really? Read on in this, in verse, in verse um, 8. Bring this to your governor. Would he be pleased to show you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. And now plead for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you favor? Ask the Lord of armies. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of armies. I will not accept, I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations. There will be real worshipers. There will be real people who offer me their best. And if it's not you, then it's not you. That's what God is saying here. Would you bring this to other people? Shut down your churches. Shut down your temple. Shut down your Christian life. Shut down your offer. Just don't give me anything. Don't give me anything. Just leave it. Just leave it. You're not giving your best. So leave it. Because God is the first and best of beings. He will not be second. You will have him as first or you will not have him at all. Test yourself. Are you fulfilling your priesthood with your offering? Secondly, are you still on this test of the priesthood? Not only do priests offer, they teach. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, they're teaching. And here it says in chapter 2, if you read on in verse um, 3, look, I'm going to rebuke you. I rebuke your descendants, and I will spread animal waste. This is crazy. This is what God's saying to him. I'm going to spread animal waste over your faces. The waste from your festival sacrifices, you'll be taken away with it. You want to give me your, your least? I'm going to spread it over your faces, and you can take it with you. Verse 4. Then you will know that I sent, that I sent you this decree so that my covenant with Levi, Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. My covenant with him was the one of life and peace, and I gave these to him. It called for reverence. There's the call for reverence. He revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, 
and nothing was wrong, nothing wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. That's what true teaching does. For the lips of the priest should, what should they do? They should guard knowledge. And people should desire instruction from his mouth because he is a messenger of the Lord of armies. Do you speak truth to people? Do you speak truth to your neighbors? Gospel truth? Or do you shut your mouth and let them think wrong thoughts about God and their salvation? Do you speak truth to Christian family, to church family? Or do you shut your mouth and let them believe what they want? Do you guard knowledge? Do you revere God with your teaching as a priest of God? Or look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2. You, on the other hand, have turned from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. So I, in turn, have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you are not keeping my ways but are showing partiality in your instruction. You only give part of the instruction. You only give it to some people. You don't teach God's word to others. Why do we do a send-off at the end of every Sunday gathering? Who's being sent off? We are, right? You're being sent off because you're part of God's holy nation. You're part of his royal priesthood. You are a priest speaking the truth and guarding knowledge in your workplace, in your homes, in the neighborhood, at school, online. You are the royal priesthood. You are called to guard knowledge with your teaching. As a Christian, but I'm not a pastor, PJ. Well, it's not talking about pastors. It's talking about priests. And if you're part of the royal priesthood, the holy nation, if you're a Christian, if you're a member of this church or any gospel-preaching church, you are responsible to speak the truth in love. So do you read your Bible? Do you study your Bible? Do you ask questions when you're confused? And do you find biblical answers so that you can grow? Or do you read your Bible and then when you get confused, you're like, oh, I don't know what that means, and you just move on. And you don't try to grow in knowledge. That's a problem. Or worse, do you not read or think about your Bible at all? Our brother Heber led us in confessing the sin of not meditating on God's statutes day and night. If we're not thinking about God's word, what are we thinking about? If we're not speaking God's word and God's truth, what are we talking about? Test yourself. Are you fulfilling your priesthood in your offering, in your teaching, and in marriage? In chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, for the sake of time, I'm literally going to summarize it, and you're going to have to read it on your own. But they were taking marriage lightly. They were committing adultery, sexual immorality. Their wives were getting older as they were both husband and wife were aging, and they were leaving their wives to, to marry younger foreign women and not, not, their, not those in the Israelic covenant community. They were sinning against God, and, and, and they were divorcing. They detested their wives in favor of younger foreign women. Marriage was not only broken down there, or marriage was broken down, and when marriage breaks down, what else breaks down with it? Sexual morality breaks down. Sexual purity breaks down. Because in marriage comes the marriage bed. Sexual intimacy is a gift from God. Read the Song of Songs. It is a wonderful gift from God to be enjoyed by God's people and by those who are human in general. You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy it. You just need to be married. Even non-Christian marriages are put together by the triune God. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. All marriages, all true marriages between one man and one woman on this earth are done by God himself. And the marriage bed is to be enjoyed there. Indulged in. Be drunk in love, it says in Song of Songs. But outside of that, abstinence. 
to honor the marriage bed. You have to honor it whether you're inside or outside of the marriage bed. And marriage is not only broken, broken down in our society, is it not, in America? It's also broken down in churches, isn't it? In gospel preaching churches, among the members of gospel preaching churches, sexual immorality exists. Divorce happens too quickly. Divorce is too quickly on the lips of spouses because God rests too lightly on their hearts. When God is not Lord here, divorce is easily spoken of and committed here and here. Add to this the breakdown. Uh, so not, we're not only talking about marriage and divorce. The, what about the sexual immorality in our society, in our churches, in our homes, in our media, in our entertainment? And, lest we get self-righteous and look down on others, the sexual immorality in our own hearts. Your heart, not the one person beside you, in your own heart. Do we take marriage lightly? Do we take Christ and the church lightly? That's what marriage symbolizes, right? Do we take the gift and beauty of sexual intimacy in the context of the marriage bed lightly? Do we take perversion of, sexual, of sexuality into sexual immorality lightly? Do we take pornography lightly? Do we take self-pleasuring lightly? Do we take the lack of self-control lightly? Do we take God lightly? You are a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. The third test. So the second test was, are you fulfilling your priesthood? Second, the third test. Do you trust God's justice? Look at chapter 2, verses 17 to chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 17 to 3, verse 6. Do you trust God's justice? God says, you guys are making me tired. You guys are wearying me. You guys are weary in your life? You're weary in your Christian life? You're weary Israeli community? You guys weary me. That's what 2.17 says. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you ask, how have, you, how have we wearied him? When you say, and here's how they weary him, everyone does what is right, or everyone does what is evil, and everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and God is delighted with them, or else where's the God of justice? So here's what they're saying. Here's how they've wearied God. They're saying, you know what? God is letting all kinds of sins happen in this church. Do sins happen in this church? Yes or no? Yes. Is God in control of this church? Is God sovereign over this church and all the world? Yes or no? So in one sense, God's allowing it to happen. So some people start saying, you know, God's, God's good with it. What, what people do that's evil, God's okay with it. God doesn't care. Or God, God's not here. Where is the God of justice? There is no God of justice because sin is happening rampant in our church and in our churches, in the covenant community. So that's the claim. You say that God doesn't care about justice and evil is good in his sight. But God, is God the God of justice? Yes or no? Is God absent? No. He isn't. And so he gives, he gives evidence in chapter 3, verse 1. Here's his evidence that God is a God of justice. See, and this is what Ross, or actually all of us read this from Matthew chapter 11. We read the New Testament. Jesus is going to quote this verse, and it's fulfilled in John the Baptist. But let's read it here in the historical context, 450 years before Jesus and John the Baptist. God promises through Malachi, see, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before who? Before who? Me. So who's coming? Jesus is coming. Or God is coming, right? God is coming. And then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant that you delight in. See, he is coming. 
So there's the command twice. See, see, are you looking? He's coming, says the Lord of armies. So God is going to come to his temple. That's the first thing. You think God is absent? You're wearying me because you think God's not a God of justice? Jesus is coming. God is coming. He's going to come to his temple. He's going to clean house. Look at, chapter, look at verses 2 through 6. He's going to purify and judge. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old and years gone by. So here's the image. You know how gold is refined, right? And silver is refined. You take the, the what is it? Is it ore? I don't even know what it's called. But you put the impure gold into, into a melting, or is it hot fire? I don't know what it is now. Okay, whatever it is. You melt gold, right? And what comes to the top? The impurities, right? Then they just sweep it away, and what remains? Pure gold. And the, the more you, so you put, it in a, you put it in heat, and you heat it up, and then you take away the impurities. Well, what is God going to do when he comes to his temple? When God comes, this is 450 years before Jesus. When God comes, what is he going to do? He's going to clean house and judge the wicked, and those who are his people, he's going to put them in the hot fire, and they're going to feel the heat. But what's going to rise to the surface? The impurities. What is God going to do? He's going to wipe away their impurities and purify his people. Does God care about his church? Yes. Are there fake Christians in churches? Yes. Will God judge them? Yes. And those who are true, true people, are they sinless? No. He's going to purify them as well. God is coming. At least in Malachi's day, God is going to come. 450 years before Jesus, God is going to come to purify and to judge. Read verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3. I will come to you in judgment, and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers. Here's the judgment on the wicked. Against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies, because I, the Lord, have not changed. Your descend you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. I am a God of mercy, but I am a God of judgment. The wicked will not get away. Where is the God of justice? Answer, he's coming. Just wait. God says, you weary me. You guys say I'm not around. You say I don't care. I care, and I'm coming. Just wait. I will come to bring judgment on all evildoers who say that they follow God and those who don't even say they follow God. They just do evil. They oppress people. They abuse their power. God will come and judge them perfectly, righteously, completely, forever. And his people, even though they sinned, he'll purify them because God does not change. God has always been patient with sinners, hasn't he been? He's always been purifying his saints. From days of old, all the way from Adam and Eve, to Abraham, to Jacob, to King David, to Malachi and the remnant here, to the 12 disciples, or 11 disciples, and then the 12 who were placed, to Bethany Baptist Church today. God has always been patient to purify his people. Praise God that he doesn't change. He still loves us. He still purifies us. He still works in us. He is coming. Now, where was this fulfilled? We already read in Matthew 11, in John the Baptist. When he says, see, I send, I'm going to send my messenger before I come. So John the Baptist came, and he prepared the way for who? For Jesus Christ. So in one sense, Jesus is here. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the Lord. He is God who comes after the messenger. So John the Baptist comes, and John the Baptist is baptizing people into a baptism of what? Anyone know what it's called? A baptism of what? 
Repentance. So he's calling people to repent from their sins. Turn from your sins. Judgment is coming. God is going to judge you. And then they say, what do we do? Don't, not only should you repent, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Real repentance, fruitful repentance is what God is calling for. Don't just say you repent. Really repent because judgment is coming. So John clears the way by clarifying God's judgment is coming. You need to repent, not fake repentance, but real fruitful repentance. And when they do that, he's preparing the way for Christ to come. So he calls people to mourn over their sins and prepares the way for Jesus. That's the, t- that's the third test. Do you trust God's justice? And do you trust the God of justice to come and bring justice in the end? Or do you get skeptical of God's justice? Fourth test here, chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Fourth test, do you regularly give yourself to Yahweh? Do you regularly give yourself to God? We, we hit this theme a little bit earlier, but it's here again, so we're going to hit it again. Look at verse 7. Since the day of your fathers, you have turned my sta- from my statutes, and you have not kept them. So you've turned away from my word. Now what does God command them in verse 7? Return to who? Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of Armies. There's repent. Repent and turn back to me. Yet you ask, how can we return? We never left you. We're still with you. And then God says, will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. And they're like, what? I go to church. I've been part of the covenant community. I'm not robbing you. So that's what they say. How did we rob you? And look at verse 8. This is what God says. By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. That's where we get the word tithe, the tenth. You haven't been paying the tenth and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, and yet you, the whole nation, you're still robbing me. So how have you robbed me? You're not bringing your full tenth. You're holding back. You haven't given me your all. So what's the command in verse 10? Bring the full tenth. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Here's another command. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field and your, and your, or in your field will not fail to produce, produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate. They'll consider you blessed for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. God says bring a full tenth. Give me your best and test me in this way. I will provide for you. And when I provide for you, your land will grow. Remember, back then, it's like making your economy grow. It's not in the, the, the worth of the dollar. Back then, your economy grew by having lots of plants, having lots of crops, and having lots of livestock. So your livestock is giving birth to many, and it's just multiplying, and then your, your crops are multiplying. You can't control your crops multiplying. You just, especially back then, you don't have, you know, um, you know, um, running water, you just wait for the rain. And if there's no rain, there's no crops. So God had literally had to water your plants or else you'd die. And so God says, test me. Give me the full tenth and, and test me. I will make the land produce fruit. You will, you will flourish. And even non-Christians from the nations, they will come and look at your land and they'll say, man, God is with you guys. You guys are fortunate. You guys are blessed. This really is a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, that's Old Covenant, Old Israelic Covenant. What about the New Israelic Covenant, the church? New Israelic Covenant community. Does God call us to give a tenth, a tithe? Yes or no? Is it, are we commanded to give one-tenth of our income to the Lord? Yes or no? Like specifically one-tenth. Some say yes, some say no. How many of you say yes? Raise your hand. 
Even like this, if you're just sort of. All right, how many of you say no? Okay, a few of you say no. Okay. Now, in the old Israeli covenant, you were required to give that, plus other things. In the new Israeli covenant, you're not specifically required to give a tenth. There is no New Testament verse that says you give a tenth. Instead, so then we say, oh, great, we're free from a tenth. And so if our hearts are not with God, what does that mean for us? I'm not required to give a tenth? Sweet, I'm going to give what? I'm going to give less than a tenth, right? That, that's, oh, wait, you just told me, PJ, we're not required to give a tenth? Cool. I can give less now. Will a man rob God? What does God call you to do? Well, we read it in, in Mark chapter 8. Deny yourself, take up your what? Cross and follow me. You need to lose your what? Life in order to gain it. Or to, to use Romans 12, 1 and 2. By the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. What does God want from you? 10%? Everything. He wants all of you. 100% of who you are. And from that, then give. I'm not, I'm not worried about members giving 10% if they're giving their whole life to God. The ones who aren't giving might be struggling with actually giving themselves to God himself. That's the problem. It's not, really a, it's not a money problem. Our church is doing well financially, aren't we? I mean, if you look at the back of the bulletin, we're ahead for the year. We're doing our budget task force meetings, and we're, not, we're actually trying to figure out what do we do with this money because we, it's really exciting for next year what we're going to do with what we can afford. We're not hurting for money in this church. So I'm not preaching this because we need money. I'm preaching this because you need God. You need to be freed from your love of money. You need to stop robbing God of who you are and then your pocketbook. Will a man rob God? What does God say? If you, if you give yourself to me, if you lose your life, you'll what? Gain it. Here he's saying, if you give, like for them, if you give a tenth of your crops, I'm going to make your crops multiply. If you give your money and your time and your life, I'm not just talking about money here. If you give yourself and your time and your money, can you give a Sunday to the Lord? Is it too much to ask for you to come Sunday morning for two and a half hours and Sunday evening to pray for, to pray for 30 minutes? Wow, that's a long time to pray together. It's too long. I don't have that much time. Will a man rob God? God has given you time. He's given you money. He's given you relationships. And he's given them to you to invest for his kingdom, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Don't rob God. That's the question here in terms of the test. Do you give yourself regularly to God? Do you give yourself wholeheartedly to God? Or are you stingy with God? Do you hold back your best? Do you only give God and serve God when it's convenient for you? When was the last time you inconvenienced yourself for the cause of Christ? And brothers and sisters, let me just encourage this church. I hear a lot of stories of you guys inconveniencing yourselves for each other. So I'm not trying to guilt trip you here. Let us be encouraged. But I do want you to ask this question as you test yourself. When was the last time you inconvenienced yourself for serving others in the cause of Christ? When was the last time you inconvenienced yourself financially for the cause of Christ? And inconvenienced yourself in terms of your time for the cause of Christ? And if you have, should it not be a regular thing? I'm not saying go in debt, run up your credit card to give for Christ. You've got to be responsible, a responsible steward of your money, God's money. But that's part. if you're going to give, you actually have to become more responsible with your money. Giving financially to the cause of Christ makes, if you give faithfully and regularly, you're a better manager of your money than when you don't give. The most generous givers are the best handlers of money. 
typically. Because they, they know that they want to give as much as they can for God's cause, not as little. So they're trying to figure out where can they cut corners, how can they manage their money better, how can they be more disciplined so that they can give. If you're not a Christian, again, thanks for coming. I want to ask you, who or what do you give yourself to completely? Who do you give yourself to completely? Where do you invest yourself in your time and your finances? Who's really worth your all? What is worth your all? Fifth and last test, do you, do you doubt God's goodness, the goodness of God's commands? Look at chapter 3, verses 13 and 15. Chapter 3, verses 13 and 15. Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? Now imagine God saying this to Bethany Baptist Church. You know what, BBC? Your words against me are harsh. You might think, have I said harsh words to God? That's what they're thinking. So they say, what have we spoken against you? And look at, here's what they said. I want you to see if you've spoken to God harshly or thought of God harshly. Look at verse 14. You have said it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant more fortunate, to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and what? And escape. So here's the harsh thoughts towards God. It's when you've said or thought, there's no real point in serving God real hard to going 100% for God. It's useless. There is no gain in keeping God's commands. In other words, God's commands are not good. They're a burden. I have to keep enough so the church doesn't discipline me. I have to do enough so that I look like a good Christian. But that's it. Because God's commands are not good. Here, here's, um, so, so we think that non-Christians have it better. Have you ever been tempted? I think most Christians have at some points in their lives to be tempted that non-Christians have it better than Christians. Have you ever been tempted to think that? I've got to read my Bible. I've got to obey these commands. Look at him. He gets to just do whatever he wants. And he's, he's doing better financially than I am. God, you're telling me to give? Look at that guy. Like he's not, she's not giving anything. And, and she's, she's flourishing financially. What about me? So people test God. Non-Christians test God and they prosper and they get away. They escape God's judgment. Let me give you an example from my own heart of my own harsh thinking towards God in my past. I used to think when I was in high school, I wish I could know my death date. Not just my birth date, but my death date. Because if I could know when I would die, I would live and indulge in sin all I, all I want, all the things I want to do sinfully, and then a week before I die, just to be safe, I'm going to repent for my sins Trust in the gospel and be saved. Then I get, and I used to say this, then I get the best of both worlds. Because then I could indulge in sin and do everything my heart desires, and then I can die and go to heaven and be with God and be forgiven of all my sin. That's the best of both worlds. You know what God's saying? Why are you harsh with me, with your thoughts? You think I'm not good? You think my commands are to repress you? And to oppress you and hold you down as if, as if the best of this world is to sin against me? Is the best of this world? Or try this test for yourself. And I get scared when I think about this because it just shows the evil in my heart. If God would not hold you accountable for 24 hours, scrub it from the eternal record. You don't have to give an account for what you can do for 24 hours. And you could, you could ask the devil to give you whatever you wanted. And you would never give an account on Judgment Day. God would literally scrub it from the record. What would you do with those 24 hours? My, my, physically, I start to feel like weak. I could feel the evil 
that rises up in my soul when I ask that kind of question. Why are you harsh with God? Why do we think these thoughts? Sin runs deep, doesn't it? We have thoughts about God, and so we test ourselves. We test, do we doubt the goodness of God's commands? If you're a child, children, do you love God and His ways? If you have good parents, or if you have parents who are on top of things, they discipline you. They spank you. And so you have to obey. But kids, do you obey because you trust God's commands are good for you? Not because you're going to get spanked? Does, is it punishment? Is that the only thing that drives you to obey? If that is, then you, you don't trust God's goodness. You're harsh with God. God is good when he says, children, obey your parents. So point one, test yourself and encourage each other. God loves us. Look faithfully towards God's final arrival by testing yourselves. I think we're just going to stop it here, and we'll go to points two and three next week. Probably like 10 or 15 minutes, so we'll, we'll wait. Um, let's, let's close here by thinking. I want you to think now of these five tests. Let me review these five tests. Let me review these five tests for you, and then I want you to test yourself. And think of one. Now, I want you to think of all five, but right now I want you to walk away with one because you're going to share with somebody around you, right? You're going to share with someone around you one of these tests. So let me review the five tests, and I want you to think about your own soul. Number one, do you feel God's love for you? Do you feel God's love for you? Test number two, are you fulfilling your priesthood in terms of your offering, your teaching, and your marriage, the way you deal with marriage and sexuality? Test number three, do you trust God's justice, that God is just and righteous even when sin is running rampant in our society and in our churches? Test number four, do you regularly and sacrificially give yourself to the Lord? Or are you holding back your best time and resources? And number five, test number five, do you doubt the goodness of God's commands? Brothers and sisters, God loves us. He doesn't give us these tests ultimately to drive us to guilt so that you feel guilty and you wallow in your sorrow and you whip yourself in the back for a few days until you feel better. God gives you this guilt and this conviction so that you would repent and trust in Christ. Romans 2, 4, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. We are not here to condemn you. You will be condemned by your sin if you just don't repent. We don't have to do that. That's just going to happen. We are here to encourage you that God loves to forgive you. So brother, sister in Christ, if you're not a Christian, God is holding out his forgiveness to you. Confess your sins to God. Ask him for forgiveness. Trust in the fact that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. And confess your sins to one another that you might really be dealing deep with your sin and growing in Christ. Let's pray together. I'll give you a minute to pray on your own, and then I'll pray.
Father, we pray that you'd create in us a clean heart. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Forgive us for not feeling your love and despising it. Forgive us for doubting the goodness of your command. Forgive us for giving ourselves to other things rather than you. Forgive us for doubting your righteousness and justice. And forgive us for belittling the holy and royal priesthood you've called us to. Cleanse us, we pray. We want to wait faithfully for your coming. And that begins with testing ourselves and repenting. So cleanse us, change us, and encourage us now in Jesus' name. Amen.